uh, was a place called Corinth, and you recognize it because we have some letters in the Bible written uh, to the Corinthians by Paul. So if Ephesus was sort of the suburb, Corinth would be the city. And uh, Corinth was uh, located on a narrow strip of land that connected Macedonia uh, and Achaia, or what we call today Greece with uh, Peloponnesus, uh, uh, almost an island, except for this little strip of land that connects the two. And so because of that little piece of land, Corinth had two very natural harbors, one on each side. And so it became a place of uh, significant uh, commerce that happened in Corinth. Uh, To the north was Greece and Turkey, and to the east and west were the shipping lanes. It was part of the trade route on the north side of the Mediterranean, and it was kind of shielded, and so people would prefer to uh, go to Corinth, take their cargo across land, and put on another ship rather than to go all the way around. And uh, so Corinth was this, you might imagine it, to be uh, a pretty international uh, type of city, kind of a, a New York City, if you will, of ancient times. Uh, When Paul went there, uh, you can read about it in Acts chapter 18. When Paul went there, he made his living off of making tents. And so while he was there, he met this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who also made tents. And uh, he befriended them, and they kind of had this little side business going on. And then about a year and a half later, when Paul left, there was a guy by the name of Apollos who came and became the lead teacher uh, there in the church in Corinth that Paul had established. And what's interesting is that, you know, Paul was from Tarsus. Tarsus is in Turkey. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were from Italy. And Apollos was from Alexandra, which is in Egypt. And so you had these three people all there in Corinth at the same time. And they weren't just from different countries, but from different continents. And so when you say Corinth was this international kind of place, you realize that, you know, uh, you would hear different languages spoken there. There would be lots of travelers who were coming and going, and especially a lot of sailors. And so Corinth was known not only for its uh, commercial uh, importance, but it was also known for its immorality, and it was also known for its sports games. Every other year, the Isthmanian Games were held there, which eventually gave way to a place called Olympia, which was very close to Corinth, and uh, it was where Mount Olympus is, and uh, there was, uh, uh, Olympia was a Greek god that was thought to live on the top of Mount Olympus, and it really is the uh, birthplace of uh, what still happened this past summer down in Brazil, the Olympic Games. And um, so this is a kind of a, a significant place. I think that you could find people probably as excited uh, there in Corinth when the games were on, as you'll find today, at the opening Sunday of the NFL season, where you have lots of people pretty excited about their teams and can't wait and want to make sure the pastor doesn't go over so that they don't miss any of their games and all of that sort of thing. So we have two letters in our Bible that are addressed to this uh, Corinthian church, and there's at least one other letter that these letters make reference to that we don't have that's lost. There's a Corinthian, another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that is lost. And uh, we've been focusing on generosity, right? We've been talking about generosity, and uh, we're saying that, you know, the five T's of generosity, uh, to be generous and to get to the next level means we've got to be generous with our time, with our talent, with our touch, being willing to get involved in other people's lives, with the truth that God has entrusted to us, being generous to give out the truth, and being generous with our treasure or our uh, money, And so in um, 
2 Corinthians, especially chapters 8 and 9, um, we have some of the Bible's most significant teaching on uh, money and uh, what to do with it and how to handle it and, and so on. God is a generous God. Everything we have has initially come from his hand. He's a generous God, and he calls those who are his followers, his sons and daughters, uh, to be generous along with him, to love our neighbors generously as we love ourselves. And so in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think we have some of the most significant teaching in the whole Bible on money. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about money. But maybe the first kind of foundational thing, way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, God reminds us that it's him who gives us the power to make money. Let me read for you just one verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Other places in the Bible, we don't have time to kind of ferret all this out, but say that God chooses where we're born, chooses which parents, you know, we are born to, and so on and so forth. And so it's important to remember because, look, this is set in a context here, this verse. Remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the power to get wealth. And so look what the context here, verse 11. If we go back up to verse 11, uh, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and you're full and you've built good houses and you live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, okay, and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Forty years they wandered around, and God took care of them, right? Um, And he says, um, with manna so that your fathers did not know, uh, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. It's all this struggle going through the desert all had a purpose to it, a plan to it, and God meant it for good in the end. And could the people trust him? It was like a test. It's just like when hard things come into our life. And, um, and then he says in verse 18, look, remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the power to make wealth. God was concerned that if he blessed people, they'd forget about him. They'd fall in love with the blessing and not the blesser. And that's certainly, I think, a a picture of what's happened uh, to to many people here in America. And when we think about kind of the current situation, um, I think it's easy to say, wow, history really does uh, repeat itself. When wealth is worshipped instead of God, uh, when money is first instead of God being first, bad things happen. And so in the New Testament, the New Testament version of this, again, uh, in 1 Timothy, where we were last week, in 1 Timothy 6.10... Uh, Kind of the New Testament version of that Old Testament uh, teaching is that uh, Paul reminds uh, Timothy that when he's teaching here, uh, tell the people that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is evil, right? Money is neutral. Money is neither good nor bad. It's neither right nor wrong. But the love of money is the root of a lot of different kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith traded God, 
traded eternity for the sake of the here and now. And some people have actually wandered away from pierced themselves with many a pain. Why am I hurting like I'm hurting? Well, as we've studied in the past, sometimes it's our own choices that are bringing on the pain in our lives. And this is one of those areas uh, that the Bible talks about. And so money itself is neutral, right? In the Bible, there's a lot of people, Job, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Solomon, Jacob, David. They were all wealthy players for God. They all had incredible wealth, if we read about this. But there are also many examples in the Bible of uh, people whose love for money eclipsed their love for God. Uh, Think Judas. Remember Judas, who traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's probably the most famous one. Uh, You know, Jesus said of him, it would have been better if you were never born. If a person is more in love with the blessing than the blesser, it'd be better for them if they never existed. He said that of Judas. It'd be better for him if he was never born. Uh, think of the rich young ruler, you remember, who walked away from Jesus. He came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And so Jesus tells him, but uh, he was too rich and uh, didn't want to part with anything. How about the rich man and Lazarus? Remember, Jesus tells a story about after they die. And there's this rich guy and there's Lazarus, the beggar, in the afterlife and what it's like in Luke chapter 16. So it's significant, too, I think, um, uh, that the Bible has a lot of wisdom to offer us when it comes to um, uh, you know, how to live with uh, wealth, as we do here in Fairfield uh, County. And uh, Proverbs is just a great place to go for some of this kind of common, everyday type wisdom. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Uh, here's some wisdom from God, right? Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Be discerning enough to say, you know what? I have enough. Maybe there's something more important than just getting the next promotion or the next paycheck or the next you know, uh, thing that I want to buy and so forth. Don't toil to acquire. Don't you know, beat yourself into the ground to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to, to know when's enough. You know, when your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. <laughs> uh, I always think of this prayer. There's a prayer in Proverbs, uh, and it challenges me. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30 um, Listen to this. Two things I ask of you, right? Here's two things. You ever pray like this? Ask yourself, have I ever prayed like this? There's two things I'm asking of you, God. Uh, uh, Deny them not to me before I die. Here's the two things I want to have happen in my life before I die, right? Number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. I want to die with character. I want to die and have integrity. Remove from me falsehood and lying. I really want to, you know... um, I want to live with integrity. I want to have character when I die. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want to be poor, and I don't want to be rich. You ever pray like this? Most of us pray like, you know what? If I hit the lottery, I'd be a really happy dude, right? No, here's more wisdom than that. Um, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I get caught up in these riches and I end up, you know, spending my life without ever really considering who is God and what are his claims on my life. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. I'm going to be so poor that I'd be tempted to steal and bring down 
the name that I profess to believe in. What a great prayer, no? And uh, there are many places in Proverbs that, that we could go. Um, so many different places. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. just one more. And uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. I don't know when the last time is you read Proverbs. You know, the men's Bible study is starting up again this Thursday, this coming Thursday at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. We have some breakfast, and then we get into a Bible study. And uh, one year we did Proverbs, and it was such a rich, you know, experience. Uh, but look, uh, Proverbs eleven uh, twenty eight. whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So again, there's all kinds of wisdom in the scripture, and money's important, and it's significant, and it's not a bad thing, but it's no substitute for God. And I think it is also significant that uh, the one uh, quote of Jesus that's not in any of the four Gospels. It's something Jesus said, but it's not recorded uh, in any of the four Gospels. It's recorded in Acts. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, I don't want anybody to miss this, uh, so I'm going to remind somebody, Paul, to uh, put it here in in the book of Acts. And uh, Jesus said this, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You'll be happier. It'll bring more joy to your life to give than to receive. Now, I like to receive. Somebody came to church this morning, gave me a gift. I love it. I'm, I'm already anticipating, you know, what it's going to be. But you ever try this out? You ever say, gee, I wonder if Jesus is telling me the truth. I wonder, you know, I love receiving. So, But if I gave, would I even have more excitement and joy about that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you ever kind of taken him to the test and uh, asked, you know, um, is it true that I like giving even more than I like receiving? That's what Jesus said will happen in your life. Anyway, so back to uh, 2 Corinthians, back to our main passage here in 2 Corinthians. You know, Paul had initiated an offering for the poor back in Jerusalem. He's in Corinth, and, uh, you know, it's a ways away from Jerusalem, uh, most of the people who believed in Jesus in Jerusalem were Jewish, okay? And um, they got persecuted for it. The Jews, you know, really were offended that they turned to Christ. And uh, not only that, but there was a famine uh, in that area. Most of the people who turned to Christ in Corinth were not Jewish. And probably Corinth didn't even notice that these people had become Christians, this little church in this commercial hubbub, you know, in the middle of all the chaos and, and all that was going on and so forth. So Paul initiated and wanted the people in Corinth to be a part of giving an offering to relieve the needs of the people uh, down in uh, Jerusalem or in Judea. And so in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, here's what he said. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed, Paul says. This is at the end of 1 Corinthians As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So Paul, like all these churches that he started, he went around and said, you know, let's take an offering to relieve the needs of the people. Let's be generous to our neighbors down in Jerusalem. And so uh, here's here's what Paul said, verse 2. On the first day of every week, Paul's like systematically, on the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Don't let this money get mingled with everything else because there'll be so many other needs and so many other wants that it'll, you've got to take this money and put it aside. You've got to be intentional about, you know what? 
We're going to put this offering aside. This is for the poor people who are down in Jerusalem, our brothers, and store it up as you may prosper, okay, so that there'll be no collecting when I come. I don't want to have to twist everybody's arm or make some big emotional appeal. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then they'll accompany me and we'll deliver this offering. There was no you know, way to kind of send it through the bank or uh, you know, send it through your iPhone back in those days and so forth. And so they had to carry it and so forth. But notice what Paul says, systematically, regularly, first day of the week, day when you worship, set it aside, don't let it get mixed up with everything else or you know, it'll dis- disappear and so forth. And I think Paul was trying to do two things. Number one, he was really trying to relieve the needs of the people down there in Jerusalem. They had, uh, you know, they had nothing to eat. And so he was trying to take this offering from people like living in Corinth, where that wasn't a problem, and bring it down there. But the second thing I think he was trying to do is he was trying to unify the church over racial lines. Because, you know, there was a rift between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And generosity is one of the ways that that rift can be overcome. And so what Paul was doing was saying to a church in Corinth that's basically Gentiles, we're going to take an offering and we're going to bring it down to the Jewish side of the church because we're all one in Christ. And we're going to overcome the racial uh, backgrounds, the different backgrounds, the different uh, former beliefs before Christ, the different economic differences, and generosity does that. And, and so when Paul poses this idea to the Corinthian church, you know, everybody was all in. There was no question, uh, you know, uh, that's the right thing to do. They make a promise. They say, we will, you know, and, uh, and, and then stuff happens, right? Paul moves on, and in Paul's absence, uh, the follow-through on this offering doesn't happen. And so now, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's addressing this issue of generosity head-on. That's why I think we have some of the best teaching in the Bible about uh, this subject. And you'll notice that Paul reasons with these Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And uh, again, I say we're a lot like the Corinthians. Uh, Our proximity to New York City, our uh, wealth on a world uh, background... And uh, especially 2 Corinthians verses, or chapters 8 and 9, very clear reasoning. And I'd say that anybody who wants to get to the next level of generosity in their life ought to become familiar uh, with this uh, particular passage of Scripture, these Scriptures. Uh, you remember that um, our theme verse for this year actually comes from uh, this section, appropriately for today, 2 Corinthians 9.11, 9 says this, You will be enriched in every way. For all your generosity. And you know we've been challenging ourselves to ask you know do we really believe this? God is making a promise saying listen you will be enriched in your life in every way for all your generosity. And then the end goal of generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What we're really after through our generosity is thanksgiving or glory for God. Through us your generosity will produce thanksgiving to God. When that offering is delivered down there in Jerusalem, these people will praise God, you know, for your generosity. So in an effort to get the uh, Corinthian church refocused on their promise to be a part of this generosity towards these other people, Paul tells this church about some other churches and how they were faithful in giving this offering. And he's sort of embarrassing the Corinthians and saying, what happened to you guys? 
What's wrong with you guys? What, you know, what happened? And so in chapter 8, in verse 1, here's what Paul writes. He says, we want you to know. We want you to know. Now, again, it's not like they had TV so that they could know. It's not like they had cell phones so they could talk to each other and know what was going on. Today, you know, something happens to the other side of the world. We're watching it as it happens. But in Paul's day, things would happen that were a little bit of distance away, and it would take a long time for other people to know. So Paul says, look, we want you to know about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know what some of the other churches have been up to when it comes to this offering. And uh, he holds these churches. Now, we know of at least three churches that were in Macedonia. Uh, We have letters to two of them. Uh, The church at Thessalonica was part of Macedonia and the church at Philippi. Thessalonians and Philippians were both in Macedonia. And then there was a church in a place called Berea, which you can read about in Acts chapter 17. And this whole area, um, what we would call northern Greece today, was rather poor because it was plundered by the Romans. And it was very highly taxed, again, like Connecticut, right? Uh, We can relate to these people. And so Paul is making it known to these Corinthians how generous these other churches were uh, with their offering to the poor Christians down in Jerusalem. And so he says, you know, we want you to know, and notice, if you will, the motivation for their generosity. Why were they so generous? It wasn't because they were such great people. It wasn't because they were just big on philanthropy. Look what the motivation was. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches. The motivation was the grace that these people experienced from God. That was the motivation for the generosity that flowed from these churches that Paul holds up as an example. He said, we want you to know about the generosity and the grace of God that was behind it. So I would tell you today... Uh, If you haven't connected your life to God in such a way that you're actually receiving from him a fullness and a richness of life and grace. Remember when Jesus was here, he said, I have come here so that you could have life and you could have it abundantly. And if you're not connected to God in such a way that you're experiencing that abundance of his forgiveness and his love and an abundance of that... uh, I think the greatest promise of God to us, eternal life. You know, that's where all hope comes from. I think one of the worst conditions you can find yourself in is to be in the world without hope and just be, you know, down and out and desperate and have no hope. Well, where does hope really come? It comes from this God who loves us and who has made these promises. Uh, Just like he said way back in Deuteronomy, I allowed you to wander through the wilderness, but I had a purpose for it. It's ultimately for your good. And it's eternal life that builds that hope into us that enables us to face the tragedies in our life and the losses that we experience in this life. And to be without hope is the worst thing. And and here it is as a gift. And so if we're not connected to God in such a way that we're receiving this grace, that it's actually coming into our life and changing us, well, then there's no basis for generosity. There's no confidence about being generous with what God's given to us. Um, it's the grace of God that becomes the motivating factor. And, and uh, we begin to uh, have this passion to want nothing more than to expand the kingdom of God to other people. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, right, and his righteousness and all these other things I'll add to your life. All these other things. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. 
So when we've received this measure of God's amazing grace, then, then notice how uh, generosity does not depend on circumstances. Second verse. He says, Paul says to you know, the people in Corinth, I want you to know about the churches in Macedonia. Verse 2. Uh, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, pretty severe language Paul's using here. He's in their severe test of affliction, in their extreme poverty, they've overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Now, their poverty and their affliction may have limited the dollar amount of whatever they could give to this offering, but it did not limit their generosity. Make that point. Don't think that to be generous, you have to be rich. I don't know how many people I've talked to, and they say, you know what, I'm going to be generous when I get more money. I've had people who've you know, come to this church over the years, and, and uh, I can still remember one guy. He said, listen, here's my plan. He said, I've got a life plan. I'm going to make a million bucks. I'm going to become a millionaire, and then I'm going to serve God. I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Let me tell you why, and I explained and so forth. Do you realize he died before he never, he, he had a heart attack and died before he ever made his million dollars? You don't have to be rich to be generous. Um, generous Generosity is really a matter of the heart and where you're at in your relationship with God than it is a matter of money and how much, right? And uh, the kind of giving that expands the kingdom of God uh, demands um, generosity. Now, when Paul says, look, you know, these people um, had severe affliction and so forth, I just... There's many places I could go, and I know I don't have time and I'm going to run out, but uh, in Acts chapter 17, I just wanted to read you. When you became a Christian in Thessalonica, for example, here's what happened to you, okay? And we could go to Thessalonians, we could go to Philippi, I could show you in those passages where Paul writes to them, he talks about this affliction and this uh, poverty that was a part of their church life. But here at the very beginning, in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, some of the people that Paul was talking to uh, were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, a great many, and not a few of the leading women. So Paul goes here to um, Thessalonica, and he's sharing the good news of what God did in Jesus and so forth, and some people become persuaded and convinced. They kind of join up with Paul and Silas, and uh, a bunch of them are Greeks, a great many. Some are Jewish people, but most of them are Greek people. And uh, not a few of the leading women. And, of course, uh, you know, women played a very significant role in support of Jesus. All right, but look, at the, look what happens here. But the Jews were jealous. What is jealousy? Jealousy is the fear of being replaced. Jealousy is the fear of being replaced. So the Jews become jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring out Paul and Silas to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And I love this verse. And when they had taken their money as security, 
from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Why were the people in Thessalonica poor? <laughs> you know? And uh, we could, like I say, if you go and read uh, 1 Thessalonians, you'll see how Paul, uh, again, acknowledges uh, what was happening there. Um, but they, in turn, become examples for other people. And Paul is holding these people up as an example of their generosity. And again, maybe poverty uh, you know, limited the amount they could uh, give, but it didn't preoccupy them to the point of being blind to God's will and other neighbors who were hurting and uh, being willing to be generous. Uh, they didn't say, well, when we have some more money, then we'll be able to participate in that offering. No, they understood God first. Uh, they understood we will be enriched in every way uh, for all of our generosity. So listen, giving is not so much a matter of the amount as it is the amount of grace that fills a person's heart. Generosity is not so much a matter of, remember Jesus said he was watching the people and the lady who gave two mites and it was all she had and she said, well, that's a greater giver than all the rest who are rich and give out of their excess and so forth. Generosity is what uh, God is after. And so, and notice in verse 2 in um, 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. I mean, they really were living what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, they had an abundance of joy in uh, their generosity. And, uh, and then uh, verse 3 says this. It says um, that they gave out of their means. See it there in verse 3? For they gave according to their means, Paul says, as I can testify. Paul's like personally testifying. This is what happened. Um, they gave according to their means. God doesn't ask us to give what he doesn't first give to us. And so uh, it's, this is a personal thing between you and God, right? This business of generosity, whether it's with our time, our talent, we can't kind of judge each other. This is between God and us. And uh, it's, a, it's an issue of whether or not we're living in response to this wonderful grace. It's really between uh, God and us. And it's not according to what we don't have. Paul, in fact, repeats this in verse 12. He says, for if the readiness to give is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. You know, uh, nobody should be motivated uh, by guilt. People should be motivated by being blessed by God, by being rich uh, and understanding that God has blessed us with all those things. And so when it comes to this, I, I don't have time this morning, but uh, that's why I think percentage giving is a great way to start. 10%, the Bible talks about a tithe. If you're wondering, you know, well, what does God really expect? I think the place to start is with what we call percentage giving. It's, it's taking 10% off uh, whatever God blesses you with and giving it back to him. It keeps you from getting attached to the stuff that God gives. God sees it, and then he's able to be more generous with us. But there gets to be a point in your life where a tithe is not enough. A tithe can just be a token. If God blesses you so much that a tithe becomes really kind of an insignificant number. I'm listening to what these football players are signing contracts for, and I'm thinking it wouldn't be much to tithe on that. You know, if you got 19 million, right? Uh, well, a tithe would be kind of a skimpy shot on, on some of that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a passage of scripture that always comes to me on this subject, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's King David, maybe it's the name that gets to me, but for a long time when I first encountered this, uh, this stuck in my craw, and it's always, it's always challenged me, I would say. Uh, way back in uh, Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter um, 21 and verse 24, uh, 
King David is offered something for free that he could use for a sacrifice, and he says this. He says, I will not take for the Lord what's yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I refuse to give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And uh, when I think about that, I'm always challenged by that because in this verse, verse 3, it says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, Paul says, and beyond their means. And I always think, well, well, now what does that mean? What does it mean to give beyond your means? I'll tell you what it means. It means sacrifice. It means being willing to be a part, to be a player to the point of sacrifice. I refuse to give to God that which costs me nothing. And um, again, when you think about this, great giving is not you know, about the amount. It's about the amount of sacrifice that says, I lo- you know, unlike me as a selfish kid saying, well, I'll give these toys because I don't really need them anyway. I don't want them. I don't- In fact, I'll give these clothes because I hate these clothes, you know, and you can have them. You know? and, uh, but sacrifice would be the challenge, right? And uh, what Paul is saying is, I witnessed this, and notice he says, too, in verse 3, it's voluntary. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Nobody should have to twist your arm, you know, to be a player in this regard, to be generous with our treasure, as we've uh, been calling it. Um, It's voluntary. It's between you and God. It's freely chosen. Free will is about being able to choose our own course. But look at this, the next verse, verse 4. I can testify, Paul says, they gave beyond their means of their own free will. Listen to this, verse 4. Begging. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't really believe that. Begging. Here's these people in this poverty-stricken area, very highly taxed, probably limited means of income and so forth, and they're begging for an opportunity to be a player in what God's doing. You ever beg to be on a team? You know, when I was growing up, uh, I-, I couldn't spell. And so back in those days, they would allow, they'd take the two best spellers and they'd uh, let those two best people pick a team. And then, you know, we'd have a spelling bee and we'd have this playoff. And I was always the last kid. And, of course, that made me not be able to spell even more, right? And nobody wanted me on their team. I I know what that feels like. And so here's these people saying, you know, don't think that we're too poor to be players. Please, I want to be on the team. I want to be included. I know I don't have much, but I want to be on God's team. I want to be a part of what God's up to. And, boy, when I look at the world and I look at the situation, I want to be on the winning team. I want to be on God's team. And so here's these people begging uh, to be a part of the team, begging to be players in what God is up to, you know? Uh, and so what happens when all of this happens? Begging us earnestly for the favor. Uh, by the way, the word favor is the same word, comes from the same root word as the word grace. Grace is just undeserved favor, right? God gives us undeserved favor. It's his favor on us that uh, creates the uh, life that we enjoy. And uh, so they're begging God to be a part of this favor, taking part in the relief of the saints. Uh, Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul says the giving was beyond what I expected. And why is that? Well, they gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves. You ever ask yourself, what are you giving yourself to? Between now and the day you die. 
Can you think of anything more worthy than to give yourself right to the Lord? Which really is, you know, the essence of worship, right? Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you remember uh, Paul writes to the Roman church. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, the grace of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give to God your mouth. Give to God your feet. Give to God your hands. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, which means set apart for God, and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow God to influence the way you think, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How did these people get involved? Well, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Because that's what the Lord's really looking for is ourselves. And what else are you going to give your life to? And so uh, after holding out this example uh, of these other churches in this, then Paul goes back to uh, the Corinthian people in verse 6. He says, accordingly, because of all of this, uh, we urge Titus so that he, uh, as he had started to collect this offering, so he should complete it. I'm sending Titus back to you uh, so that this act of grace can be uh, uh, fulfilled. And then let me just close with verse 7. As you excel in everything, he says, in faith, if you're going to be a Christian, a God-first Christian, you're going to have to excel, you're going to have to grow in your faith, right? As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech. You know, there's a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says, listen, every careless word out of your mouth will be judged. I hate that verse. You will be held accountable for every careless word. So if you're going to be a God-first believer, your faith is going to have to grow. Your speech is going to have to reflect, you know, going to have to reflect your faith. And then he says, um, not only that, but your knowledge, your ability to embrace truth and wisdom is going to have to grow. Uh, Pursue excellence in this thing. Get to know the truth and get to have confidence in it and in earnestness. You can't sleep your way into heaven, you know. Get some zeal, get some passion, get some fire in your belly kind of thing. Like your earnestness, your zeal, get a strategy, get a vision. Get, you know, you're, as a Christian and you're seeing the world and the way it's going and, and God's put you here as a light in the midst of the darkness and all those uh, other things. And your love. What the world needs now is what? Love. Love's the only thing that can overcome the hate that's behind Things like anger and and all the psychosomatic kinds of illnesses that we wrestle with and so on. And then finally, Paul says, you know, uh, excel in this act of grace also. The act of grace of giving. Of being generous to our neighbors. Excel. Now, I'm going to tell you, anybody who's on the receiving end of God's grace can excel in these six areas. And this is a great you know, in your bulletin, you always find a couple of connection questions. Here's a great, uh, you know, take this the next step. Take these six issues and get before the Lord and ask yourself, which, which one of these six excellencies has grown the most and which one's grown the least in my life and why? And it'll give you kind of a game plan for, uh, I don't know, the rest of this year or whatever. Uh, my time's gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just bow before you this morning and thank you so much for the Bible. It gives us such wisdom and instruction and clarity about uh, subjects that are really uh, tough for us sometimes. And so bless uh, your word into our lives in such a way that it transforms us for your sake, we pray.
Amen.